At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Scott Flyrods was started in a San Francisco basement in 1973. As a teenager, Jim Barchi used to spend his time pestering Harry Wilson, the company's founder, with questions until he was eventually offered a job. The position was a success. To date, Jim is the company's president and rod designer. Jim is quite deliberate about keeping his name quiet within the company, so I had many questions about who he is and where he came from. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss keeping up with trends, Scott's internal ferals, and the name game in the fly fishing industry. Well, I was born in the Bay Area of California, um, so I grew up in the what was the epicenter of fly fishing. Where do you live now? I live in Montrose, Colorado. Does Scott Fly Rods bring you there? Yes. Okay. Um, we're just going to really start at the beginning because I know you've been there for a really long time. So let's just talk about your parents. Did your parents fish when you were growing up? Uh, I actually come from a long heritage of hunting and fishing people in Montana, but my parents were the first people to leave, and they ended up in California, in Berkeley. And uh, they were eh, not super hippie, but they were kind of. I was going to um, ask, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so my sister and I are the only two people in the family that are not native Montanans. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? Okay. So, and so now, because they weren't super hippie, but... Um, they sound a little free spirited. They, I'm assuming that you know they didn't fish. Like it's not a cliche fishing story. Uh, no, it's not. Um, in fact, they didn't. They were busy uh, doing other things. So it was my grandparents who uh, summers in Montana when I was a kid who got me into hunting and fishing. Okay, so you hunt as well. Oh yeah. Cool. I actually yeah. did not know that about you. Yeah. Walk me through the timeline. What what happens then? Uh, let's see. About the time I was 12 or so, uh, I had a friend from school who lived out in the country and out in the country back then is, you know, a few miles out of town and there was a bass pond on his property. Uh And so we spent our days after school chasing bass around with fly rods and, um, we, you know, wiled away many hours doing that. And that led to 
ultimately me getting into fishing more and more. And the real thing that got me was my addiction to steelhead on the California coast. Yeah. So I ended up, as soon as I could drive, I ended up spending every minute I could out on the coast when the fish were in and chasing them around. Um, And then sometime, it might have been my first or second year in college, I started guiding. And I was guiding on the Trinity, the Upper and Lower Sac, the Yuba, um, and then, of course, the coast, Guilala, Garcia, Navarro, all those great sort of Russian River area, coastal streams around the Bay Area that have steelhead in them. So that's how I got into the industry. Were you guiding because this was potentially going to be a career for you or because you just needed to make money? Where was your head at? Uh, it, it was actually, my head was at going to graduate school in a um, philosophy program. So I thought I was kind of taking an academic route, but I loved fishing so much that it seemed like the proper job to have. So you have to earn money, you might as well earn it doing something you love. Yeah, I'm assuming your parents would have instilled that into you at a really early age. They sound like they'd be that those sort of people. Yeah, yeah, they were. Um, my dad was an engineer and scientist at Lawrence Labs and UC Berkeley, and my mom was an um, artist. And at one point, uh, we moved to Mexico and lived there for five years. And so when I was a kid, I got to grow up and another place as well, mm. um, which was cool. Okay, so dad was actually professional, and then mom was more of the artsy side. Yeah, I wouldn't call my dad a professional. <laughs> <laughs> he was a crazy scientist. Okay, okay, a got mad it. scientist. He was a mad scientist, <laughs> literally. <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool, though. I would never have thought. All right, okay, so then you dive into the industry, and yeah. what's your first step beyond guiding? Uh, well, uh, you know, the fly shop world. So I grew up around on Andre Pouillon's creative sports and mm-hmm. Pete Woolley's fly fishing outfitters. And of course, Michel Act's fly shop. So those were my haunts and hangouts and, uh, you know, other kids growing up, Ken Morish and stuff in the Bay area. There was, there was a little community of sort of, uh, I guess, you know, Grom, it wasn't a term then, but we were definitely Groms, you know, we were kids fly fishing and, um, <laughs> And learning how to tie flies and hanging out and, you know, absorbing everything we could. Uh Um, So that, of course, uh, Scott Flyrods was located in the Bay Area. And that, of course, led me to hang out and bug them all the time. And who was them? Like when you say them. Uh, That would be Harry Wilson, the founder, and his partner, Larry Kenny. Okay. Uh, And they founded it? In 1974 in San Francisco. 1974. Wow. I mean, to be honest. I, I know now, in the industry now, I know that it's been around since then. But when I w- was first hearing about squat rods, I did not know that it dated so far back. Yeah. In fact, a really cool thing is that the Bay Area really was the epicenter of fly fishing. I mean, the model for the specialty fly shop kind of grew out of California. Uh, you had Winston rods in the Bay Area. You had Scott rods. You had, uh, not far away, Powell. A lot of like innovative leading brands were in the Bay Area. Um the shooting head was invented there. I mean, all kinds of techniques for fly fishing for steelhead came out of the Bay Area scene. You had the Ray Jeff brothers, you know, <laughs> when they were like knee high being tutored by Tarantino at the Golden Gate casting ponds. That's and, the other I, thing, yeah. Right? And they're like, how badass are they? Right? right. I mean, like, so, uh, you know, and, and all that, it's still going strong, but uh, it, 
since, you know, over the decades, it's moved. I mean, now Denver, Bozeman, there's areas now that are more, I guess, closely associated with fly fishing and certainly uh, kind of represent the sport more. But back then, the Bay Area was legit. I mean, it was serious. And also back then, the fishery was stronger too, right? Yeah, it's pretty strong still. You don't hear about it a lot, but man, I'd say for variety and opportunity and and quantity and quality, it's still one of the best places you could possibly fish. It's not easy, but it's sort of like think of the keys, you know, for flats fishing. It's like it's not easy, but it's it's the real deal. Yeah. Right? Well so, that's actually good to hear yeah. that, you know, someone who's from there say that it still is healthy and it's not dead. Oh, no, not by any means. It's still incredible steelhead fishing, great striper fishing, great trout fishing, great bass fishing. It's things like, you know, Corbina on the beach. I mean, where else can you do that? Right. right? So um, there's a lot of things you can do. California is truly the golden state in that regard. Um, and uh, that being said, I don't miss it. <laughs> okay. Because it's just too busy now? Yeah. I mean, you know, living in rural Colorado is... Is that a dream come true? Yeah. 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 Right? Okay. So you're a young man back then, you know, back then you're yeah. bugging the guys. How old were you? Did you say? Uh, you I was thinking? probably 20 something. Okay. Yeah. And Early 20s. Was it just the two of the guys? Uh, no, there was probably six or eight employees. And um, uh, so I'd go by and, you know, I, I mean, of course I wanted rods so bad, but they were <laughs> just way too expensive. Oh, they were? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a company that's always just made fly rods and just made top end wonderful fly rods. Um, and this is before the days of like the cheap $200 setups. All rods were expensive, right? Well, no, there were there were cheaper rods. Um, and that's, you know, the Shakespeare Wonder Rod for oh, instance, right, of course, was, yeah. was my sort of mainstay in my quiver. Um, you know, I just didn't have 400 bucks for a Scott rod, but man, I'd like to go by and cast them right. all the time. <laughs> and like so, you know, I, I'd go over to uh, Clementina Street, uh, an alley in San Francisco where the shop was located, um, which, of course, now is like total hipster district. But back then it was, you know, you'd have to, you know, step over the drunk bums in the, in the, <laughs> al- in the doorways to get to the shop. And then, you know, ask Harry, like, hey, can I cast that four-weight? <laughs> and we'd go out in the alley and cast. And then eventually he was just like, what are you doing here? Like, you know, you're wasting our time. And I'm like, well, why, why don't I work here? And Oh, you said that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, uh, he was game, but Larry was like, no, this kid, no way. <laughs> and he's got like, you know, purple hair and, and uh, you know, he's, he's a bum, you know. He's like, no. <laughs> you had purple hair? Uh, maybe. I don't remember, but I might have. Potentially, I could have. Yeah, okay. um, so that didn't happen right away. But eventually, somehow, it, it came together. Do you remember how? I mean, did you get a call one day? Uh, I don't remember exactly how it happened. But um, somehow it happened. And uh, <laughs> so I worked there a few days a week while going to school. And, and somewhere along the line, I was getting ready to go to graduate school. And uh, Harry actually had a stroke. He, he was quite old when he founded the company and when I started there uh, in his late 70s. It had to sell the company. And uh, he could no longer run it. Um, and he was confined to a wheelchair. And so he sold the company. And probably, I think that was in 1994, maybe. Oh, yeah. And the new owner 
wanted to move the company. Um, who was the new owner? Uh, Bill Ford, uh, who is the current owner of the company. He wanted to move it and was looking for kind of more of a great fly fishing location. So uh, he looked at a number of places, you know, in Montana, Idaho, Colorado, and found a little town in the southwest mountains of Colorado called Telluride mm. and loved it. And he said, hey, just come out and check it out. Like, you know. Were you thinking you were out of a job? Yeah, I was, I was on my way out. I was, I was heading, like I said, to uh, graduate school to oh, study so were, some esoteric anyway. subject. Okay. Like really <laughs> ridiculous thing. So, so you, were, um, you were planning on leaving anyway, and it just all sort of happened at the same time. Yeah. Okay, may I ask just real quick? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but what was your role there? Oh, so I was building rods. You were building, but you were not the rod designer? No. Okay, who was the chief rod designer at that time? Uh, Harry and, okay. and his partner, Larry. Right. Um, and so I worked, of course, really closely with them, and they were my tutors and my mentors. Um, but I was building Scott fly rods. And so uh, the opportunity came to go out to Colorado and check out this little town. And I went out there and one of my high school friends was there and uh, she took me out snowboarding because I, I came out in, I think it was April of that year and it was a big snow year and we had an epic powder day. Um, and then it was sunny and warm and so I went fishing later in the day and caught a bunch of fish and I was just like, oh my God, I love this place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I've been accepted to the program. I can defer a year and hang out here for a year and snowboard a bit and climb a bit and fish a bit and hunt a bit, and then I'll go back to school. So like, this is a really attractive opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I, I took it, and um, then here I am 20-something years later. You just never left. Uh, right. <laughs> Okay, so Bill obviously saw value in you. How many other people did he move out there? I was I was the one. Right. right. Okay. Now, was his idea at the time to have you design rods, or did that just kind of happen organically? Uh, it happened organically. Actually, it was my role to transition the production and run the production. Mm, okay. Yeah. Uh, which I did, um, and within a few years, I started fulfilling the role of chief rod designer. So it was probably two or three years after moving out there. Okay. Now you guys back then, I would imagine, were a pretty small company. Were you in shops in big numbers or were you still really small? Uh, no, we were pretty widely distributed in, in, you know, the usual suspects, you know, the, the, Back in the day, of course, that would be the you know Bob Marriotts and Kaufmans and Fly Shop and you know the kind of mainline specialty fly shops. Scott was a, a pretty mainstay brand, um, but it was mostly a specialty trout brand. That's what I always thought of you guys as right. was a real specialty. Um, and I just I remember it was like fifteen years ago, maybe. I felt like you guys really came out with major presence on the West Coast, in BC anyway. Was that, I mean, am I missing something there? Were you guys big there before that? Or did something really happen 15 years ago or so that kind of gave you a boom? Yeah, I I think that was, um, you know, that's about the time I started running the company. Um, Uh -uh, And I think that, uh, you know, we transitioned from kind of a trout-centric 
brand to a, a you know a, a all inclusive global brand. But it's interesting because in the forty five years that Scott's been operating, um, we don't also offer fly rods. It's all we do. I mean, that's all we've ever done. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to have a company that can look back on a over four decade legacy of doing one thing and doing it really well. Yeah, like, extremely well. Yeah, and so it, it's pretty neat to be associated with a brand like that that's so focused and dedicated. Okay, so I know you don't like talking about yourself, but I got to bring it back to you here. So you know, then you start designing rods. Did you feel was that a big role? I mean, you look at all the other companies, and you're like Jerry Seam. You know, you've got Steve Ray, Jeff. You've got these rod designers. Did you at any? I mean, I've never seen you cast Jim. I would assume you know what you're doing. <laughs> Did you feel overwhelmed at all by that? No, I've I've been a lifelong angler, and I had the rare opportunity to be mentored by some of the best in the industry, right? So it's not like I just was thrown into it. Uh, You know, I got to grow up into it. Right. So there's a big difference. There's a big difference between jumping in with both feet and your eyes closed and and having, um, you know, like I say, the rare opportunity to be tutored, and sort of grow up with it. You're doing an incredible job. Now, I'm, I'm not just saying this. I don't Thank blow you. smoke up anybody when I'm interviewing. But even when you guys first you know, introduced the, like the two-hand rods, they were still absolutely fa- fantastic. They've got soul. They're not too fast. And I, I just want to talk a little bit about what makes Scott Rods different. In your opinion, as a designer, what do you see you guys doing that's a little different? Well, honestly, I think... We're such a fishy company, like, I, I, and it's such a weird thing to say, but literally, you know, everybody is super passionate about fly fishing in the sport. Everyone who works there, you know, Teresa, the production manager, you know, the owners fish all the time. I mean, everybody does our, you know, our reps. It's just we're we're so in it, you know, we're so deeply in it that I think, um, you know, and that's part of it. It's like a lot of people say, you know, hey. We, you know, Scott Rods may not win the parking lot contest, but we always win the fishing contest. <laughs> like, you know, in terms of of being a a really good fishing tool, they're they're awesome, and and I think it's because we're we're so into it. I mean, I I don't play golf. I don't, you know, and not, not I'm not knocking golf or anything. I'm just <laughs> saying, like, when when I make time for myself, I fish. That's what yeah. I do. Like, you know, whether it's uh, a couple hours after work every day, you know, which is pretty common for me, um, or going somewhere around the globe, you know, that's what I'm doing. Like that's my, that's, I don't know what you, it's not even a hobby. That's my life. It you is know? you. Yeah. That's my life. It's so, so tied up in that. Um, and I think, uh, that comes through in how we approach things. I feel like you guys have never, and, and still don't, push the brand down people's throats. I've always felt like it's kind of grassroots. You know, you put them in, in like guides' hands, they fish them, they love them, they recommend them, and it just feels raw. Was that something that you guys intended to do, or did it just, is that just how it is? I, I think it's more of our personality. You know, we're, um, we're a pretty quiet company in that mm-hmm. sense, in yeah. that we don't beat our chests a lot. We don't make a lot of noise. We figure, you know, people will find us eventually, and when they do, they're usually really psyched and, and happy. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And and that's served us really well. I mean, it's it's been good to, you know, this is a small industry and I've seen a lot of people come and go and a lot of things. And, and if you're in it for the long haul, which we certainly are, um, and you're really dedicated to it and you want to be around for a long time, it makes sense to me to be grateful, be thankful, be happy, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, and just do what we do and try and do it gracefully and well. Yeah. (laughs) No, for sure. And it makes sense, you know, because I always wondered, I'm like, why does Jim not try to brand himself? You know, you see like Ray Jeff, he's, he's obviously extremely talented. He's a brand within himself. He's going to competitions and stuff, whether he intends to do that or not is irrelevant. The point is, is he's a brand. You very much have not tried. It feels like you have not tried to make you a brand. You've definitely stayed within school. Scott's brand. Yeah. And, and well, I think in a lot of ways, the Scott brand is me in the sense that I've led it and, and sort of driven it. But, but that's plenty. Like I say, I'm super happy to uh, share the things that I'm really passionate about, you know, in terms of fishing and rod making and things like that. And um, always have pretty unlimited, I guess, energy for that. But um, yeah, no, I've never really cared about being at the center of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah it no. comes through. Talk to me about the finish on the rods. That was always a big selling feature. Or, or what made you guys stand out above the rest was you had this raw finish. Yeah, well, um, so the whole idea behind that, it's kind of crazy. So that's the way the rods were made when I came into it. Oh. But what I what I realized along the way was that it was the most pure and to me beautiful expression of rod making because we weren't hiding anything under a coat of paint or anything like that so all of our work had to stand out on its own and it was out there to see so that meant if you didn't make the blank perfectly you'd see the imperfections um, if you didn't wrap the rod perfectly, you know you'd see that it, it's all there to see. There's no, uh, you know, sort of monotone blend in. All the threads are are you can see the guide feet through them. So everything has to be done well. And so that then I, I realized that was uh, actually it was super hard. And there was a uh, almost a tendency to be like, "Why are we doing this? It's really hard. Like, like let's let's quit doing this and do it like everyone else." But then I realized that was actually a strength. Like, hey, we're doing this because we can. Like, so let's really do it well. Like, let's kick ass at it. So we started making it even harder, (laughs) (laughs) which is crazy, right? Um, And it's funny because when we give people tours of the shop, they're always like, "Well." You know, is it okay if I take a picture? I'm like, you can see everything here. Like, we're if you're stupid enough to replicate this, knock yourself out. Like, <laughs> you, I will show you how to do it if you want to do it, right? Right. Because it's super hard, and it takes so much time, and it takes everybody being on board. Like, everybody has to be on board. Uh, here's a really cool example. So. Since we don't paint the rods or whatever, we have to get the kind of our our cosmetic look, if you will, from from the wraps. So a Scott rod will have maybe like 46 different thread wraps on it compared to maybe 20 on a normal rod. So a lot more. But 
we tie off the wrap and cut thread on the same side of the blank so they're all lined up, <laughs> right? I mean, that's a little bit obsessive. It is. <laughs> yeah. and then, it's a lot of work. Yeah, and so, I mean, and that's a lot of rods that we're doing that with, like every single one of them. And, um, and like I say, you can see the guide feet through our thread. I think we're the only company that's crazy enough to do that. But that also means that as an angler, and someone who buys our rod, you can see them too. Right. Right? So that kind of gives us, it keeps us honest. It like makes us, we have to be committed to doing things the right way so that you're happy with what you get, right? Mm-hmm. When I used to work at the fly shop, I used to work at a tackle shop and we had a small collection of Scott rods. And I remember we used to just sit there and battle it out. It was like, nah, they do it to save money. Nah, they do it because it makes the rod stronger. Nah, it's for the flex. It's for the action. And none of us actually knew. But so now I know. Yeah. So it, it, it's it's about trying to express the craft of rod building in its purest form. It's, that is so cool, yeah, isn't it? And it suits the brand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it suits the company. Oh, this is you, yeah. You guys deserve some serious respect. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Let's talk a little nice. bit about the, the names of your rods. They've always driven me insane <laughs> in, in a good way, in a bad way, because they're so technical and they sound you know, so badass. But then you compare it to rods that have such an easy name, like One and you know Sage is very clever, obviously. Even and, and Loomis is clever with their names. Did you ever feel pressured to get sucked down that marketing hole of giving them, you know, flash names? Yes, of course. Um, but again, that's sort of something that that we resisted. It, it, it is a it's a sucking hole for sure. It mm-hmm. wants to pull you in. Where do you get your names from? Well, um, they must mean something. Sure, sure. Yeah, radian is a mathematical term that is an expression of the degrees of arc of a circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, yeah, they, they all mean something. Um, but it's funny, truly, it's sort of the Scott way is it takes a village. So, 
we get our names, we design our rods, we, we do everything sort of communally. So contributions come from all over. I mean, people in the shop come up with the wrap colors and, you know, friends suggest names and guides and people, you know, buddies fish the rods and make sure they're good, <laughs> you know, and they, and, and they keep us honest too. I mean, they're like, no, this sucks. Like, no, don't, don't make this like, or make it better. It needs to be better. But when you guys had rods, like what was <clears throat> the one, I remember being so confused and this is so many years ago, but you guys had like the S was like the S2 or, oh uh, like, yeah. what are so, those names? <clears throat> so those were, th- that was an example of being sucked into the whole. So oh. that was sort of using the alphanumeric system of naming rods. And, and it really doesn't mean much, you know? And I, I don't think people can really sort of get behind that, you know, the X, one, Z, four, three, two. Does it have yeah. meaning though? Like what? No. It's literally just random. Like you picking numbers and letters out of a hat. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh God! I know exactly. I hate it. Horrible. I hate it too. Cool. Well, that's. I'm happy I asked. All right. Let's talk a little little bit about this internal hollow ferrule because I think that's really interesting. Is that something that Scott came up with, or is this something that's been around in like the bamboo world forever? No, it's a a Scott invention. It's really interesting. Scott has a huge history of innovation and contribution to rod making and rod design, and we probably should do a better job at telling people but like i'll just go back to the very beginning it's it's insane when harry started fiberglass was the material there was no such thing as a graphite flat rod and fenwick was the leading brand in the Mm -hmm. industry it was the brand everyone wanted and they were the first people to bring out a graphite rod i think it was 1975 or so but they simply substituted graphite for glass so they were making a lot of seven and a half foot five weights or whatever Harry had a light bulb moment and he was like, oh my God, I, I can make a long light line rod out of this material. So he told everyone he was going to make a nine foot four weight. And they were like, you're crazy. Oh, really? That's, that's going to suck. I mean, imagine if you're used to glass, right? Yeah. A nine foot four weight. Oh, would, so heavy. Yeah, it would be awful. Heavy, wobbly. Harry was like, no, I can do this. And he literally built a nine foot four weight that, changed everything. I mean, it it totally opened up Spring Creek fishing with teeny bugs, long leaders. It was a like an amazing achievement. And from there, I mean, I think Scott made the first five-piece rods. We made the first switch rod before there was even a name for it and or a fly line. We had we had to tell people how to cut up fly lines <laughs> yeah. to cast. So, it was, you know, uh, first blue water rods, first, you know, we, we've done so many things, first warm water rods, specific rods. So there's been so many things. And then uh, part of that, you know, the hollow internal ferrule, we were the first company to use a super fine graphite material in a directional way. I'm trying to say it in a non-technical way. You can for be your technical. Okay. No, 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 so they're, anyway, they're good. Go for it. We were the first people to use a multi-directional graphite scrim mm-hmm. um, that that wasn't a random mat. That was a, a full-on uni that we laid up in in angles against the zero-degree fibers. And um, that kind of stuff has become industry standard. So a lot of things that we have done and brought to the industry have 
gone on to be emulated, incorporated into other people's products. Um, it's just and, so forward thinking. And, and we continue to try and do that. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the nice things about being a fly rod only company is mm-hmm. that we can f- truly focus on rods, right? I'm not worried about making pants or selling them. Like I don't have to worry about how many SKUs of pants we sell because we don't sell pants. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank we, you. we only make Thank fly you for rods. Not selling pants. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and and it's cool to be able to do that, right? It's like we are, that's what we are. We're a fly rod company. And so so because of that, we get to really focus on rods and rod building and rod design and everything that goes into them. Yeah. yeah. So I would imagine, and let's just talk a little bit more about the feral. Sorry to like oh, beat yeah. it. But, but I'm assuming, obviously, it makes it a little bit lighter. But who figured out, I'm assuming in casting, that you know you don't have the energy disruptions of the difference of like the 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 wall thickness is mm-hmm. that kind of why well that was the idea mm-hmm. the idea was make it a one to piece. to emulate a one piece rod in that you would have no disruption in the taper you'd have a continuous taper and by actually making the ferrule just like you would the blank what we've been able to do over the years is we've been able to tune the mass and stiffness to match the section. So mm-hmm. we can use a combination of material choice, wall thickness, things like that, so that the ferrule actually becomes almost integrated into the rod itself. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, so it's a, cool, it's a cool system. But we also like building rods with sleeve over ferrules, and it's interesting. We innovated something there as well. We used to not make sleeve ferruled rods at all because they were to us they were so offensive. And I don't. I'm sure you remember. If and I'm not picking on anyone, but you go back to Orvis Loomis rods of 15 years ago, and they literally looked like someone had wrapped a sock around yeah. the ferrule. Right? They were so yeah, thick, super thick, so heavy. They had so much mass. They added so much stiffness. You could bend the rod, and there'd be a 10-inch flat spot across where the ferrule so was. So that was the graphite, too. I just thought it yeah. was kind of epoxy, but that was no, actually... It was, it was the blank. Whoa. Yeah, right? So it, it offended us deeply, and we, we <laughs> would not use them. But at one point, I was like, you know what? I really like this ferruling system, and it has a role. It, it, it's a good ferruling system. How can we make it so that it's a well-engineered connection? And... So we were the first company to come out with a sleeve ferrule that had a super thin wall that looks almost flat, like looks almost continuous taper, almost like an internal ferrule. And so if you look at our rods, there is no change in wall thickness between the section and the ferrule. And and now if you look at everyone else's rods, they look similar. Mm-hmm. Um, could you patent that? Is that something no, you could do? No, no, okay. you can't, um, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? Uh, so, no, there's not a lot you can patent in the in the rod-making world. Um, so everybody benefits from innovation. Yeah. yeah. When did you guys start advertising in magazines and stuff? 1976. Okay, so before you came on board. Yeah. In fact, I have a ad from Fly Fisherman from 1976 pinned to my office wall and it uh it it is all about fishing light line rods because that's how scott got its start 
we were specialists in multi-piece light line fly rods. And uh, so it was advertising, and it's all copy, no, no photos, just a little bar of, <sighs> sidebar of copy. And uh, it says, you know, fish as light as you'd like with Scott fiberglass three and four weight rods. Oh, cool. That'd be really cool to see. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> what about the introduction of the first two-handed rod? Was that you? The timeline looks like that yes, would have been your it, time. It, it was, it was. And that was, um, gosh, the ARC series is still sought after, especially the 1287. Yeah. That's a, it, it's kind of become a legend, <laughs> that I, rod. I remember these conversations in the fly shop. Oh, yeah. You guys really stirred it up. Yeah, so we've been trying to do that off and on over the years. Um, you know, the the heel apply and STS saltwater rods were huge, huge when they came out, and really changed the whole flats game. You know, and and I I would like to think today that Radian and Meridian are are two of the sort of standard setting rods out there for flats and freshwater. So yeah, we've we've had a a lot of. You know, we've been fortunate to have a lot of good successes over the years. Let's talk a little bit about your guys's mindset when it comes to matching like grips to rods. Do do you think that it truly is just a matter of personal style, or do you think that certain tapers and certain flex, you know, actions of rod cast better with certain handles and grips? Uh, that's a really good question. It's complicated. So, um, yes and no. I think that there are certain grip shapes that favor the anatomy of the hand and the way that you cast. And those are always the best shapes. Um, But I also think that certain rod actions favor certain grips. So a good example would be we use a really diminutive, small grip with a cork slide band on our little sort of sub-seven-foot fiberglass rods. And... It sets the reel way back, and it helps balance the rod in a certain way. And it's a grip that people look at, and they're like, uh, it, they, it's hard to get them to warm up to it because it doesn't look secure, you know, like the reel might fall off or it looks too small. But when you actually fish it, it's really sweet. Mm-hmm. So there are, yes, yes, there are certain grips that I think work better with certain rods, but that being said, I've also seen people design grips for, uh, I guess, visual impact, and they forget about anatomy. And that's a mistake. the most important part. Yeah, exactly. I've cast some rods that are so beautiful, but the handle, I mean, it, it, I feel like I've got a bloody club in my hand, yeah. but the rod, I can tell the action's great, but it just disrupts it. I, I can't get into it. Right, right, exactly. And I have not found that with Scott. I find that you guys are always bang on with that. Well, like I said, we're. I think part of that too is we always say if you fish a Scott rod, you'll get it. Like you know, that on the water where it counts, that's we tend to do things like we're the first company to put alignment dots on ferrules. We're the first company to put measuring wraps on a rod, and and we do kind of fishy things. Like the reason we put alignment dots on the on the rod was so that you didn't have to sit there and sight down it. I mean, you know. I put your nail polish on. I was always so yeah, nervous putting my we, nail polish we, on. We, we want to get, up. right? Like yeah. it's like, yeah, we're at the river. We're stoked. We want to get on the water, right? So we want to assemble our rod as quickly and efficiently as possible so we can, you yeah. know, get out there and fish. <laughs> and so all, all those things, same thing. Like, you know, we want to be able to quickly assess, uh, you know, the general size of a fish without having to, you know, take it out of the water and put a measuring tape on it and kind of 
mistreat the the fish. It's like, hey, let's do things that that are angler centric. You know, let's let's make rods that serve our our needs and purposes. And so I think you know whether it's a grip shape, whether it's a little touch like alignment dots, whatever it is, it's you know we're always thinking of how to make our fishing experience better because it's just a tool, right? A rod is nothing more than a tool to facilitate what we love doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, <laughs> right? For Which sure. is casting fly line and catching fish. Right. So, so let's look at the business side of this then, which is never as enjoyable as talking about the fishing side. From a marketing stance and from a sales stance, you guys have seemed to maintain your integrity this whole while. Do you ever look at the industry today and all of these fast-ass rods and think to yourself, what is going on out there? Do you ever feel pressured to give into that? Uh, not anymore. I used to feel pressured for sure, but no, no. Uh, we've been around long enough. We've seen enough come and go that, uh, no, we're, we don't feel pressured by it. I think we're more than happy to, uh, go our own way, uh, follow the path that we believe in and not really worry too much about what the other guys are doing. What happens when you hit a wall, though, and you just don't know what to do from there? And it seems like every year you have to come up with something new. No, we don't. (laughs) In fact, fact, uh, we we just replaced a rod series that we made for 14 years, and that rod series replaced one that we made for 25 years. So we do not not chase the, the story that, it's new, so it's better. No, um, it doesn't make any sense. No, and no. I was telling, and I'm not going to throw any companies under the bus, but I've been told a company before, when you introduce something every year, you make the consumer wonder if something was wrong with the one before, because now you're saying, this is the new and improved, it's better. And then that consumer who's fallen in love with your brand, or they're trying to develop a relationship with you, is wondering, well, what the hell did I buy last year? And there's certainly nothing wrong with that rod. And what really gets me is the CEOs and the people behind that company are the first to say, oh, my favorite rod was from 30 years ago. Right. My least favorite rod is from last year, but we have to do it for sales. And I'm looking at them going, no, but, but, but you don't have to do it for sales. And, and the other thing is, the, the thing I've always thought about the fly fishing industry is like, look, I mean, you know what? Look at us sitting here across from one another. You've been in it for 20 years. I've been in it for 30 or whatever. It's, we're a small community and we have to answer to one another eventually. Like, I, I'm not going to trick you. I'm not going to fool you, April. You're going to see through it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Right? And I know that. <laughs> Especially nowadays. And I know that, right? So I'm not going to even try. I'm not going to mess with you like that. Like, <laughs> and With the internet nowadays, you can't hide. Like, oh, no. it's going to come out. Yeah. And why would you want to? So I, I feel like, you know, we have to be true to our community and we have to be honest with them and treat them fairly. And, and in turn, they'll do the same to us, you know? So um, that's the way we've always tried to operate. I love it. Um, just a couple last questions and then I'll let you go. You guys do not sell direct? No. It seems like you really appreciate your relationships with shops. Uh, it's so core to who we are. We believe in the fly shop more than anything. It's like, well, I grew up in fly shops. I mean, that's where I learned. I learned how to tie a fly in a fly shop, you know? It's... I would have never learned to tie flies if I didn't have a fly shop I could go to. And uh, there was a pot of coffee there, and 
I mean, there was a crazy old guy who uh, turns out was a hell of a great fly tire, um, <laughs> Andre Pouillons. Oh, and, oh, just him. <laughs> yeah, and um, and you know he had endless time t- yeah. for kids who wanted to learn how to tie and. You know what? It, it, I developed a huge passion for that. I mean, you know, I still have so many fly tying materials. This is ridiculous. Um, anyway, I don't <laughs> tie very much anymore, but uh, I, certainly it was that experience that, like, you know, that welcomed me in. It got me stoked. It, I learned so much. And you know what? Without a fly shop, where, where are you going to get that? Like, the fly shop is the interface it's it's ground zero for our people you know it's like it's where you go to get information and get your stoke on and get your you know it's where you go to learn how to cast or take a guided trip or whatever Mm -hmm. and so i never want to see this fly shop go i i think the only place you could possibly sell a scott rod effectively is in a fly shop i agree yeah i mean so anyway i'm a huge huge believer in the model we have and and a huge supporter of it. It seems like it's working. Is there anything new uh, that's coming out with you guys that you want to talk about? Oh, we're always working on stuff. Um, this year we just introduced at, at IFTD a new line of small creek glass rods. Oh. Yeah, five models of um, very creek-centric specific rods that are mm-hmm. really designed to be... They're really optimized for forming a loop with maybe three to ten feet of fly line out of the tip. Oh, wow. So you can actually feel them and form a precise controlled loop with literally five feet of line out of the rod tip. And um, Is this true glass or like a hybrid glass? Nope. It's glass. And in fact, it's e-glass. I went back, I ditched the high silica content S-glass, went back to e-glass. Really, really tasty just really sweet rods, and they're all short. They're from like five and a half to seven feet, um, all light line, of course, you know, two and three weight stuff. And they all break down into about 18-inch rod tubes oh. because one of the things was, hey. Backpacking in. Yeah. I mean, when you're creaking, you're walking. And when you're walking, you've got a day pack on. And if you have a day pack on, your rod should fit in it along with your water bottle and you know, a snack. Do you want to explain to my new, my newer listeners why a softer action tip is going to be so fantastic for a light tippet? Oh, sure. So um, the rod actually needs, the way a rod works and the way that it makes a loop and casts is it needs to bend. And so on our faster, you know, more general, let's say graphite nine foot five weights, um, they tend to do that in the ranges that we cast and fish them, you know, 30 feet, 50 feet, whatever. But if you're casting a small n- amount of grains, because in fly fishing, it's the weight of the line that we cast, not the weight of the lure, right? So when you only have a short amount of line out of the tip, you actually don't have very many grains. So what we can do as, as engineers of rods is we can actually create flex in the rod so that it forms the loop uh, without the weight loading it. So... That way you can you can bend the rod with very little weight, and um, it, it's a it's a little bit of a trick, I guess, in terms of making something that you can form a loop with and cast and feel. Um, but it's really effective for that kind of fishing, right? Because 
honestly, when you're fishing a creek you can jump across, a 15-foot cast is a, a monster. It's a, it's a long bomb, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like uh, casting a whole fly line off a flat skiff or something. So, you know, you if you really want a good tool for that kind of fishing, and I think it's the kind of fishing that we a lot of us do and love, you should have something that you can actually feel and cast in those ranges. And, um, and glass is a beautiful material for that. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's an optimal material for that. Um, mm-hmm. And making a rod that, that bends with a teeny amount of fly line out allows you to, to actually cast accurately and fish it in those ranges. So yeah. it's cool. And setting your hook, obviously, you know, you're going to be less likely to bust that ticket up, that tip it off. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there's all yeah. sorts of reasons why it makes sense. Yep. Okay. Um, last question for you. My husband was all about me for this, uh, on this subject last night. I hear you guys have introduced a, the best, apparently the best offshore marlin rod that there is. Well, yeah, it's part of again. We're we're very much application focused, and um, and again, since we fish a lot, probably more than we should. <laughs> uh, no, you never can do that. Um, <laughs> we try and solve things. Uh, here's a great example: when you're when you're offshore fishing, fly fishing for pelagics, which uh, maybe you shouldn't even do, but that's another debate. But when you're doing that. The way you rig is really specific. I mean, first of all, you, you never fish a whole fly line. You're always fishing a shooting head of some kind, typically very short, typically attached to gel spun backing. The casting is not as big a deal as the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few things we did. For instance, uh, we have titanium SIC guides all the way up, to even the tip top, so that gel spun won't dig into the guides and cut into the snake guides, for instance. Um, we built it with a glass tip so that you can actually cast off the tip. Um, it's got a, a gimbal for a fighting belt. It's got an extra long grip so you can cast from the back near the reel, but you have a place to rest your other hand. Thank you um, for that. Yeah, right. It's an unusual rod, but one that's super effective for exactly the kind of fishing you're doing when you're targeting blitzing fish offshore and um, especially tuna um, or marlin um, but but especially we actually developed it for tuna fishing um, and amberjack and stuff but it's become a effective marlin tool as well but we always try and think through things like that um, whether it's a simple trout rod or something really specialized like an offshore rod well, you guys yeah. don't disappoint. Um, I'm happy Thanks. we were able to sit down. Thanks, Jim. Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? No, I don't think so. Cool. Thanks. Thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.